And listening involves more than just not talking. Listening involves really putting yourself into your partner's shoes and trying to see the situation from their perspective and trying to imagine how they might be feeling, even and especially if you feel quite differently. And it does involve a bit of turn-taking. And in fact, we're much more likely to get heard if we listen very deeply Because part of what happens when in a conversation where you have two people that are speaking is that both people feel like they're not getting heard. And so they're just talking louder and more quickly so that they have a better chance to get heard. But of course, if both people are doing that, then really nobody is listening. So a lot of what I do in couples therapy is slow it down and really structure it. And you can do that at home by having a pen and the speaker holds the pen and the person not holding the pen is the listener. And again, the job of the listener is not just to stop talking, but to really imagine how it is that their partner thinks and feels, especially if they feel and think differently than you do. Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend, Brad Stolberg. Brad, what's going on, man? Not much. You know, I, I, I broke a rule and they say never read the comments, but I read some comments on our podcast and we got a five-star rating from someone out there in the world, Anonymous. And they said their favorite part of the show is every time you ask me how I'm doing and I just avoid the question and I'm like, I'm doing all right. Well, it's great to talk to you, Steve. So for this reviewer, you know, he said that he keeps listening to get the answer. I'm going to answer uh, I'm doing really well. Our youngest is starting to sleep more consistently, so a little bit more rest in the Stolberg household. Had a really good time training in the gym today. The weather is starting to feel a little bit less like midwinter, and like spring is 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 working its way over here in the Blue Ridge Mountains. So um, I'm doing good. You caught me on a good day. Tomorrow might not be as good, but I'm going to enjoy it while I can. How are you, Steve? Oh man, look at that. A- an actual answer, no avoidance there. And you know what? You know what would keep Brad's day going good into a good week, into a good month? That's if they bought if our you, books. If you bought our books, The Practice of Groundedness, Do Hard Things, and you joined our Patreon group because you get to, you know, talk to Brad maybe every once once a month for our, our book club or once every quarter for our mastermind group. And you'll get a copy of our upcoming book as well. So keep keep Brad happy. And you'll keep our, our behind-the-scenes guy, Chris Douglas, who has been a guest on this podcast. You'll keep him employed and doing great things and making sure that Brad and I stay on task and... Uh, keep putting out good content and stop slacking. So keep Brad happy. Join the Patreon, buy the books. Defac01, if you're if you're still listening, you left this comment towards the end of the year. I appreciate your five stars. We all do. Um, now you know how I'm doing today. So I hope that you're listening. This one's for you and, and for all of our other listeners. And the one other thing that you can do to support the podcast is just what Defac did which is leave a review if you listen to this on iTunes, Apple Podcast, or on Spotify. The reviews help other people discover the podcast. If you don't have the time to leave a review, even just a simple rating, if you like the show, please give us five stars. Um, that goes a long way. So with all of that said, 
A quick primer on today's conversation. She's back for the second time on the podcast, Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn. She's a clinical psychologist and also a professor of psychology who specializes in connection, relationships, and parenting. Yael first joined us to talk about her book, Work, Parent, Thrive. She's back on the show today for a more general conversation on intimate relationships. Um, I found it really helpful. There's all sorts of concrete things that I took away from it that I will attempt to start practicing in my own attempt to start. So it shows my degree of confidence that I'm going to start practicing in my own relationship. Um, so we hope you like this. You know, Steve and I do what we can to stay in our wheelhouse and, um, and we don't want to become just another interview show. But recently, we've, um, we've had the opportunity to bring on just people that are world-class at what they do that's a, a little bit different than us. So whether it's Stu McMillan on coaching pro athletes or Yael Schoenbrunn on being in the trenches, working with couples, going through challenging times in order to prevent challenging times, um, we hope that you enjoy the interviews when we have them. And this one's as good as any. So with that, we'll get to the conversation. Hey, Al, it's wonderful to see you. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm so glad to be back here chatting with you and Steve. I love chatting with you before and I'm excited to do it again. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you back. So is a quick refresher for longtime listeners of the podcast. Yeah, Al joined us last year when her new book, Work, Parent, Thrive, came out. It was also a best of the Growth Equation 2022 reads. And if you haven't yet listened to that conversation, you're going to want to check it out after this one. So go ahead and star it. If you have, you'll know that we focus there really on boundary setting around work. And in particular, for those of us that are parents or perhaps uh, full-time caretakers elsewhere, how we can both do a good job at our career and also in those caretaking relationships. Well, we wanted to bring Yael back on today to talk more broadly about intimate relationships. It's something that Steve and I are both in, and it's something that we're not pros on. Um, we are both in an intimate relationship with each other as collaborative partners, but also with our partners, Caitlin and Hillary. And um, yeah, we, we wanted to expand our aperture a little bit. We're talking about performance and excellence all the time. And um, I know I speak for Steve when I say this, we couldn't be excellent and we don't think really there is such a thing as excellence if you're not in harmony with your intimate partners in your own life. So um, Yael, why don't you just, if you can like introduce yourself in, I don't know, 30 seconds to a minute about your background, your research focus, and then your clinical practice, and then we'll dive right into the conversation. Sure. So I am a clinical psychologist by training. I started out in academia, but have since expanded into other areas of professional work. But in all my areas of work, I focus on relationships. And so I sit on faculty at Brown University in the medical school. I also have a small private practice where I specialize in couples therapy and parent coaching. And I am an author and I also am married and have three kids. So I have a lot of relationships in my life. And I don't know that I necessarily consider myself an expert in my own relationship, but I certainly know how to teach them. And I know sometimes where I'm going wrong, which is helpful because then I can go right again. 
But I do think that the science and practice of relationships is a very powerful science because what we know from research, and this is like decades and decades and decades of research, is that one of the most important things for a happy, fulfilling, meaningful life is good relationships in whatever form they take. It can be a close community of friends. It can be relationships with your family. It can be friends. It can be relationships at work. In whatever form they take, close relationships are really important for a happy and fulfilling life. And yet they're really hard to do. And the science and clinical psychology teaches us some of the ways that we can do it better. And better is never going to be perfect, but knowing some of the tips and tricks and where we can get off track is quite helpful. So that's what I spend a lot of my professional life doing. And I practice it in my personal life imperfectly. So as much as um, we'd love a therapy session for me and Steve's collaborative partnership, for the, the <laughs> purposes of this conversation, when we talk about relationships, let's at least start by talking about intimate partnerships. Um, so your spouse, your husband, your wife, your partner in that regard. And um, if you could kind of pinpoint, I don't know, the two to five common traps or the biggest challenges that you see couples face, um, or perhaps we could even frame it as the, the the kind of patterns that you see that lead to separation of couples. Are there any that stand out? I and mean, this is a question that I'm so interested in because at a time where my own marriage is going really well, on the one hand, I'd like to think that, oh, you know, you see people divorcing, separating, that can never happen to me. But on the other hand, these are great people. It's like, of course that could happen to me could happen to any of us. So what are some of those traps? Oh gosh, there's so many. Um, some of them are really like on the ground traps that we forget that our partner has an experience that's different than our own that's happening right beside us because we get so consumed with our own experience, particularly when we're having a hard time. So being able to expand out and get curious about the experience that's happening right alongside you. Some of the most common things that I see in couples therapy are challenges in communication. And some of them are really basic. Like we know that one person should be speaking and the other person should be listening, but it's so common that we're both speaking at the same time, even if we're sort of turn-taking in the speaking, if that makes sense. And I can go into that in a lot more detail because I do do a lot of communication training as a therapist in the couples therapy room. Um, when it comes to the difficult phases of life, one of the common things that happens is that we forget to prioritize our marriage. So where prioritizing our partner during the dating phase comes more naturally because we're really excited. Our new person is novel. They're interesting. There's a lot of intrigue and it comes pretty naturally. And so we start to believe that it should come naturally, that if it's the right fit for us, that we should want to prioritize it. But like anything, we habituate. So this is a common uh, area of study of human human being, right? Which is that most things we just get used to. And so we uh, no longer feel the motivation because we kind of get used to whatever was initially exciting. And so this belief that it should just naturally be something we want to spend time on and prioritize is, some, is something that can cause us not to prioritize it. And when we don't nurture our relationship, our relationship can start to wilt in a sense. Um, some of the other things that happen is, happens is um, just like life gets stressful. And so our, our mind 
starts to create stories about why it's so stressful. And our partner is right there. So it's very easy to vilify our partner when the truth is usually much more complex. It's often the case that our partner could be doing more, but it's also often the case that they have a load that they're bearing. And that kind of gets back to maybe the first point, which is that we forget that our partner has an experience and an entire world that we may not be able to wrap our own heads around because we're so consumed with our own world. So those are a few of the really common things that I see. I guess I should also say, because I do couples therapy, I see a lot of betrayals, sort of um, affairs, but also uh, just broken agreements. Like, for example, if a couple had decided that they were going to live in a particular place or not have kids or have kids, and the other person decides that they would like to change that contract, but that isn't what the other the first person signed on for, that it can feel like a betrayal. And then there's the more... Um, traditional kinds of betrayal, like affairs or uh, substance abuse, those kinds of betrayals. So I see a lot of that in couples therapy as well. And then I also do a lot of uh, treatment for people who have young kids because it is really, really hard to keep a marriage alive and thriving when you have when you're so exhausted and stressed out. And that's pretty common too. All right, there's a lot to chew on there that I love to dive in, but let, let's start with maybe that communication piece. Because I think that's something that often we kind of take for granted. It's like, oh, I know how to talk to other people. So where are the spots that maybe we get wrong? And um, maybe some tips for our listeners to learn how to do that better. Yeah, I can I can share with your listeners a little bit of my communication 101, which does start with, I mean, I, I start off by saying, you know, there needs to be one speaker and one listener. And listening involves more than just not talking. Listening involves really putting yourself into your partner's shoes and trying to see the situation from their perspective and trying to imagine how they might be feeling, even and especially if you feel quite differently. And it does involve a bit of turn-taking. And in fact, we're much more likely to get heard if we listen very deeply because part of what happens when in a conversation where you have two people that are speaking is that both people feel like they're not getting heard. And so they're just talking louder and more quickly so that they have a better chance to get heard. But of course, if both people are doing that, then really nobody is listening. And so a lot of what I do in couples therapy is slow it down and really structure it. Okay, you're going to be the speaker first and you're going to be the listener. And I need a commitment from you. And it'll be easier for you to commit if I sort of guarantee I'm going to give you some airtime after you really fully listen, but you have to first fully listen. And you can do that at home by, these are some of the classic therapy techniques, by like having a pen and the speaker holds the pen and the person not holding the pen is the listener. And again, the job of the listener is not just to stop talking, but to really imagine how it is that their partner thinks and feels, especially if they feel and think differently than you do. So that's point one. The second thing that I that couples find really, really helpful, and what's really fun about this is that people take these lessons and communication skills and bring them into the workplace and to friends because they're just really good fundamental communication skills. So there's two fundamental conversation types that I explain in couples therapy. So one is problem solving. Problem solving. The goal is to solve a problem. It's pretty obvious. The second type of of communication is what I call a discussion. And the goal of a discussion is to understand more deeply what it is that your partner thinks and feels and how they see a situation. And for the speaker to feel more heard and understood at the end of a discussion. And so again, the distinction in one is you're solving a problem. That's problem solving. The 
discussion, though, is to understand more deeply. Like that is the fundamental goal of a discussion is to understand more deeply and to feel more understood. So it's important to distinguish between those two types of conversations for a couple of reasons. One is that a lot of people in our modern world default to problem solving really, really quickly. It works pretty well in the workplace. We think, you know, we, we need to solve the problem. We want to be efficient. The problem is that if we default into problem solving too quickly, we often don't have a deep enough understanding of what the problem is. So it's like going to the doctor and saying, I have a stomach ache, and them saying, here's some Pepto-Bismol. When they haven't done a thorough analysis of why do you have a stomach ache? How, how, how has your stress been? Do you have a history of stomach cancer? How often are you going to the bathroom? And if you don't do that thorough assessment and you just kind of put a Band-Aid on it, it's likely that you're not solving what's actually problematic in the first place. Similarly, it can often be the case that you have two people that are solving different parts of the same problem. So where, you know, for me, childcare, the issue is that, you know, I want to be doing more of it. My partner might think, oh, we need more help, right? So there's an issue with childcare, but we're solving a different part of why childcare is problematic. So we don't have an understanding and then we're going to have friction because we're solving different things and both feeling frustrated that the other person isn't collaborating with us in solving. The other reason that it's important to distinguish what kind of a conversation you're having is because it's often the case that one person wants to problem solve, whereas the other person wants to have a discussion. So for example, if I have a crappy day at work and I go home and I tell my husband, oh, I had the worst day and I just want to vent. And what he thinks I'm asking for is some problem solving help. And he says, well, you know, maybe you could call the insurance company or talk to your colleague in such and such way then I feel like he's telling me I did it wrong, right? If only I had done it better, then it wouldn't be such a problem. So I'm going to get frustrated because I feel kind of invalidated. Why isn't he just listening to me and saying, oh, poor you, and I totally get it, and of course you had a rough day. He's going to feel frustrated because all he was trying to do was be a supportive partner and help me solve what was plaguing me. Like he sees that I'm hurting and he wants to make me feel better, and so he's offering some ways to make me feel better. So I'm feeling invalidated. He's feeling insulted because I'm telling him his help sucks and we both feel kind of rotten. So the tip here is to really clarify for yourself when you feel like a conversation is not going in a way that feels very satisfying. Is there a listener? Is there a speaker? And who, which, which of you is which? And what kind of a conversation do you want to have? And can you clarify that to your partner? So it's this very simple tool uh, both of those are fairly simple tools. They're they're simple, but not easy, right? Mm-hmm. As most things in psychology are. Um, but it can be really helpful to clarify, hey, you know, I really just want to have a discussion. Can you hold off on problem solving? Or I really need your help problem solving. Or I have something really important to say and I want to listen to you, but can you first just give me a few minutes of airtime where you try hard to listen to me? Some of those really basic requests and clarifications can be really helpful in having a conversation do what it's supposed to do, which is either to solve a problem or to have you be more understood and heard at the end of it. Do you find that this often falls along gender lines? Because I know that the stereotype tends to be that the male wants to problem solve and the woman just wants to be heard. And I think that um, there's perhaps even another component that I'm curious to hear your perspective on, which is how often is the issue that the, whether it's a male or a female, but the person that wants to problem solve, they just don't like the discomfort of seeing their partner sad. 
and or they start to internalize that and think like, well, I must be doing something wrong if my partner's sad, so therefore I need to fix this instead of just holding space for a sad partner, which is often a lot harder. Mm -hmm. I I think you almost answered your first question with your second comment, (laughs) which is, I do think that there is a gender difference in how often people default to problem solving versus discussion, but it's not as big as you would think. The biggest distinction is the person who most of us want to feel understood first and foremost before we do problem solving. But the listening, the listener is so much more likely to step right into problem solving for the exactly the reason that you just articulated, Brad. It's hard to see somebody that we love, that we care about hurting. And the second point that you made is probably even more important, which is we often feel it personally, that if our partner is upset, sometimes they legitimately are upset with us. And so we want to fix it. And we feel uncomfortable and we feel blamed and we feel defensive. And sometimes it's it's not so direct, but somehow we feel responsible because it's this person that we're supposed to make happy. There's this sort of implicit commitment that we've made in partnering up that I'm going to make you happy. And it's paradoxical, but the best thing that we can do is really pause in our problem-solving impulse and just connect with our partner wherever they are. And the hardest place to do that is when our partner is angry or disappointed in us because we do have that automatic defensive response that is is just so human. I mean, I teach this for a living and I still have to really like grit my teeth and pause myself when my partner is upset with me so that I can really hear him out and connect with him where he's at before I do any fixing. Because if I do the fixing before I do that, it, it works in this backwards way where he feels invalidated and not heard because I haven't heard him fully. And anything that I might do that I would want to be helpful doesn't actually move us forward. A, a lot of this sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like communication, the things, the tips you outlined is a way to like shift us subtly from the self-focus to more of like expansive or other focused and understanding that? Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, definitely. That is the power of discussion, right? Which is that it's connection first, right? It's sort of a we, a weeness. And one thing that I often say in couples, in couples therapy is anytime you can turn a problem into us versus the problem from me versus you, that's a win. Us versus the problem sets you up as like, we're collaborators. Even if the problem is a difference that we have or something that's upset one person about the other person, if it can be us versus that difference, again, that's a win. And Steve, as you're saying, it's because it sort of, it combines you. It's it, Now you're not adversaries, you're in it together, you're, you're teammates. And that just feels better. The other thing that's just fundamentally true is that there's something quite healing about connection. I mean, therapy in and of itself is built on that, right? There's all sorts of tools and strategies in therapy, and I'm totally geeked out about the science. But most fundamentally, therapy is healing because you have somebody there, the therapist, who is hearing you, who is connecting with you, who is meeting you where you're at. And there's just something that is healing about that. So no matter what it is that you're going through, it it can be something excruciating and tragic. But if you feel like you're connected inside of that experience, it is so much more tolerable. And we lose sight of that so often because we get defensive, because we, you know, our ego takes the lead. And so exactly as you're saying, Steve, when we can step into that weeness and let go of the ego and seek out connection, 
again, that's just a win. Like we're in it together. And even if whatever it is that we're dealing with is excruciatingly painful, at least we're holding hands with somebody as we do it. Is there any validity to the five love languages? And maybe is there any validity is like, um, of course, there's probably some validity, but let me reframe that question. What's your take on the five love languages? (laughs) Well, it's so interesting that you ask because... all three of us geek out about science. So like love languages comes up so much in couples therapy. And I totally was like, is there any science about this? So I went on Google scholars because that's what I do. And I, there are, is actually some studies. There's um, some factor analyses that have shown that they do bear out. These five different love languages bear out. There's not a tremendous amount of science. So I don't know sort of how firmly to take that stand, but there's not nothing. So I can get behind it for that reason. And it is also just a very useful construct in the therapy room where people can really appreciate that uh, different people express their care in different ways and want to receive care in different ways. So I do use it, um, not extensively, but I find it to be a pretty useful tool, especially when you have two people who like say one person really wants to communicate their love through language. Like I want to give you compliments and say nice things and I want to have you do those things for me. And the other person wants to do it through quality time together. And they just can't figure out how to meet each other. So then we talk about this metaphor of languages. Okay, you speak English and you speak Hebrew and you can learn to speak one another's languages, but you're never not going to have an accent and it's never going to be your primary language because you're only learning it in your adulthood. So it's not going to feel flawless. But if you can appreciate that the other person is in their own clunky way trying to communicate in your language and do the same for them, then you can find that connection. So to your first question, there is some science to the to my point, there it, it's just very useful. People can really kind of wrap their heads around that idea of languages. And, and can we go over the five real quick? Because I only know the three that impact my life the most, which is like <laughs> physical intimacy, compliments, like being told you're great or thank you, and um, like acts of service or, or doing things for the other person. But there's yeah, two the more. other two are gift giving and um, quality time. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Neat. In 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 there again, I think um the the question that I'm gonna um I'm gonna what's the word I'm looking for? Like an astrologer does telepath. In any event, a question that I think some listeners might be having is is this the kind of thing where like you just wanna like have a very rational discussion with your partner and be like, Hey, these are my love languages, like this is what I'm in need of right now. What about you? And even if it feels kind of contrived. You just like you do it because that's what that's where your partner is right now, and that's where they want to meet you. And, and this kind of gets to the communication too. I noticed you said like, even if it means gritting your teeth. So when we're doing some of these things, is it okay even if it does feel like we're kind of forcing it? Like mm-hmm. I'm sure there are times where my wife feels like we are forcing physical intimacy, and I feel like I am forcing acts of service. Is that okay? Um, it's okay if it's okay. I, I think well, it, no, it, yeah. it depends. It, it, yeah. So, so let me reframe. By, and forcing is maybe too powerful a world. Like a consenting adults, not forcing yes. like that, yeah, but like, like gritting your teeth and in, 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 in bearing it. And even that's an overstatement. Yeah. Like for me, it can feel like so contrived sometimes to do these things that clearly to my wife is like 10 out of 10 sexual attraction. And I'm like, this is really what turns you on? <laughs> 
It just reminded me, I had a supervisor once who said, who he, he was so funny and awesome and very authentic. And he shared this example of before he and his wife would get intimate, she would need to share her to-do list, which often included like what grocery shopping she needed. So like before they would make out, she'd be like, well, I have to go get some apples and some milk. This sounds all too familiar. Yeah. I very Maybe not like to the, the tea, but pretty dang close. Yeah. So a couple of things. So one is that it can help to clarify the values. And we've mm-hmm. talked about this before, and I'm sure you guys talk about this lots when I'm not here, but in acceptance and commitment therapy, values clarification is one of the, of the core processes. And so it can help to transcend the discomfort of feeling like an activity is artificial if you can connect to the reason that you're doing it. And the reason isn't just to make your partner happy because that that can sometimes burn a little. The reason is because you care about this relationship and you're nurturing this relationship and you care to be somebody who takes care of things that matter to you and this relationship is one of them. And one of the ways that we take care of things, like think about our kids or our pets, like we do uncomfortable things and we do them because that's how we sh- that's how we take care of whatever the thing is right we go out of our way and put in some effort and nurture whatever the thing is that needs some nurturing and our relationships need nurturing they are like plants right we have to give them time and attention and energy and they they don't just thrive on their own and sometimes that means we do things that are a little bit out of our comfort zone the other thing that i often tell people and So Brad, what you're saying comes up a lot when I'm doing communication skills training because I really push people to do active listening. Like, okay, and it feels really artificial. I'm like, okay, hang on. Before you respond and tell me what you think, can you reflect back what you're hearing your partner say so that they understand that you're hearing them? So, And if you don't, so that they know that they need to clarify further. And people are like, that's just not how I talk. And I say, that's okay. Think of it like physical therapy. Like you've been in a wheelchair for a really long time and now you're getting some mobility back. It feels awkward. And your physical therapist is going to have you do all these exercises that feel not like natural walking because you can't naturally walk because you haven't done it in a few months. So it does feel unnatural. And over time, you'll find ways to adapt it to what feels more natural. And sometimes when you're hitting a rough patch, you're going to pull out these exercises. It's kind of like you had a week off and now that muscle feels a little strained again. And so you go back to the exercises that feel a little bit artificial so that you can re-access some of that movement that feels important to you to do on a regular basis. So it can feel unnatural and it will feel unnatural, especially if you don't do it and it's not natural for you, right? It's not like your way. It's not your language. But if you can connect to the values as this is something that I do in the service of this relationship, which I care to participate in, and I care to show up as a caring partner in, then that can help to motivate you. And then recognizing that part of why it feels unnatural is that you haven't worked out that muscle, or maybe that's just not a muscle that comes very easily to you, but that you're going to try through your activities is the growth mindset piece to build it so that it becomes a little bit more natural as you practice over time. So I, I'm going to go with the athletic analogy. Sorry here. I have to bring them in. Um, but it reminds me a lot of like when you're trying to change some sort of movement or biomechanics, often what the, the, the direction the coach gives is like go towards the feeling like the unnatural, like the awkwardness, like it's going to feel weird. Like it's going to feel weird because you're stuck in this like rut of competency. And in order to get you out, we've got to dislodge you a little bit. 
And, and that to me sounds like what you're saying here is like sometimes these tools are going to feel really weird and strange and maybe even forced, but like that's to dislodge you from this rut to like bring in some of that maybe awareness or like other focus versus self-focus. Is that kind of on the right accord? Totally. It reminds me, the way that you just phrased it reminds me of this concept of deliberate practice, which gets talked about in Peak on Andre Bjornsson, Erickson. I think it's Erickson. Um, and I love his research. I mean, he's talking about expertise that has nothing to do with relationships, but I do think that there's something to it. Like we can easily grow stagnant, even if we're solid, generally speaking, as relational creatures. And if we care to do better and continue to grow our relationships, we we need to kind of push ourselves. But we we get lazy about relationships because, A, life is just busy. And we have this belief that good relationships are self-perpetuating. That isn't true, right? Anything worth doing takes some care, and our relationships have a lot of value. So pushing ourselves a little bit out of our comfort zone is really useful if we want to continue to grow our relationship skills not to mention that one of the things that happens in long-term committed relationships over time is that we get a little bit bored, right? We, we sort of do the same thing and, you know, we have our relationship habits and our relationship partner isn't as much of a mystery and the things that used to be intriguing and novel are no longer intriguing and novel. And so if we push ourselves and what we know about relationships uh, from relationship research is that that's a part of what can cause our relationship satisfaction to deteriorate over time. We get a little bit bored. And so pushing ourselves to increase our relationship skill and try new things creates more variety and novelty, and that can really increase our relationship satisfaction. So it's both to be better at our relationships and also to make it more fun and interesting. And fun and interesting goes along with effort. I mean, sometimes we wish that it wasn't that case, but but it is, right? When we put in more effort, things are generally more interesting. So I'm going to ask um, uh, a follow-up question there that feels related, which is it's a topic that that you've written about, that I write about extensively, that Steve's written about, which is this notion of behavioral activation, which in short is you don't necessarily need to feel good to get going. You need to get going to give yourself a chance at feeling good. And I think I'm coming back to that because it's kind of like the grit your teeth and like just get started. But then when you're done, you feel great. Is there a role for that kind of attitude in in relationships? And I guess not just physical intimacy, although I'm sure that's where most people's mind goes, but just like in the grind of showing up for your partner day to day when you have been married for 10, 15, 20 years and you are just kind of in that autopilot mode. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it, it does go along with what we were saying before about, um, you know, putting in some energy. And the problem, as you're saying, and this is where behavioral activation is so powerful, is that we get bored and find our relationship boring and we're tired and pulled in lots of different directions. And so we don't put in the energy and then we feel like it would be such a tall mountain to climb to even try to put in some energy and we'll wait until the kids are older and they're driving themselves and our work isn't so stressful. And we just wait and wait and wait until we feel like it. But we never feel like it because the longer we wait, the less likely we are to feel like it because we grow more and more distant and unhappy in our relationship. And that is totally not inherently motivating us to want to put in any energy. And so 
what behavioral activation suggests is you do the action first and just expect not to want to do it. That's okay. Like just expect that you won't feel like it and do it anyway. And the hope is that if you do it and, and, you know, without the expectation of feeling like doing it, that it'll help you to be more likely to have the feelings that you're looking for after the fact. I do think, especially in relationships, as opposed to depression, like it can take a lot longer because you have two people and there's such a complexity of feeling that exists between two people and such a history and often a pretty painful history. So it's different. With depression, you're sort of battling your own internal demons and our our internal emotions are much more responsive to activity than our relationships are in, in terms of like the efficiency of response. So the expectation needs to be adjusted for a behavioral activation intervention in your relationship. But it is one of those things that can be helpful in terms of doing the action and not expecting to feel like it, but sort of thinking about it as I'm contributing, I'm nurturing this relationship, I'm practicing this thing that's important. And yeah, I I don't feel like doing it because I've grown really distant from my partner and we've gone through a lot of things that are painful and I'm not doing it because I feel like it, I'm doing it because I care to be rebuilding it. I do think that people's minds are going to intimacy and and that is a really big one. Like if we haven't been intimate for a long time, we are not going to feel like being intimate. It can feel really awkward actually. And so I do practices with couples where I start really small and have them build incrementally over time. And I was I was asking it less, although it's super useful from a rehabilitation standpoint and more from like a prevention standpoint. Mm. So listeners know that uh, I've got two young kids and like everything's fine, but like going on a date takes a lot of behavioral activation because when a babysitter comes, which we still haven't had since Lila, but if mythological babysitter does come, my wife and I are both going to agree that what we want to do together is like sit on the couch, stare at the wall and fall asleep. Not shower, not go out, not make a reservation. Who has the cognitive like ability to think about making a dinner reservation? All these things. But then even with our first, when we would do these things, we felt so great after. Like we would get physically intimate, all these things that we were too tired to do if we just kind of like forced ourselves through. So I was asking it much more from like a a steady state than a rehabilitation standpoint. Well, I love that question. And I, I love the example that you're giving of recognizing that you don't feel like it, but then seeing that you do feel better after. The other tip that I often give parents, especially with super young kids, and and it was advice that I took myself is set the bar really, really low, like maybe a date and a babysitter, especially, you know, if you don't have the resources for it or family nearby or, or like the mom is nursing and the breastfeeding is really unpredictable, like do something in the house, but be dedicated about it. So for example, have an in-house date night and maybe the in-house date night involves Netflix on the couch, but you're cuddling and, and you're really paying attention to each other or a cup of tea in the morning and recognizing that you might be interrupted. And so what I recommend to people who, uh, you know, either they have young kids or are otherwise feeling the demands in all different directions is to establish a goal of once a week doing something that enjoyable with your partner, like a shared fun activity and make it fun. Like don't ask yourself to, you know, go hike a mountain if you have a baby who isn't sleeping through the night. Do something low key, but make a dedicated effort once a week and aim for two weeks out of four. Like consider it a win if you hit two weeks out of four. Similarly, aim for one time a week and aim for two out of four with, um, 
doing a check-in. Like, how are we doing? So one fun activity and one marital check-in per week, even if it's just a few minutes, even if it's super low stakes and aim for two out of four, because we need to be flexible, but we need to sort of keep the ball rolling. To your point about maintaining steady state, when the demands are high, the goal is not perfection. The goal is to just keep the ball moving on your relationship, to sustain that connection, to give something to it. And if you have less to give, give a little less of something than you otherwise would if you had more resources. I've got one more follow on, Steve, and then I'll let you jump in with a different question. But I think this is really um, this is really rich and really timely for those of us with um, with kids. So I hear all of that, and a couple of things come to mind that I want you to riff on. I'm just going to lay them out. You can take them in whatever order you want, y'all. The first is that seems like a really low bar. <laughs> and doing that for 5, 10, 12 years, you get to the other side and you're like, oh my gosh, Like I hardly even know you. Like We've been checking in once every other week and setting aside an hour. And I know that these are like bare minimums, but there's that. And then very much related, when you're in a phase like this, I think that and I, I think about this on so many topics in, in definitely this one, there's like a spectrum between accepting the situation and radical acceptance and just being like, yep, like we're logistical partners for the next eight years. If we can go out on a date once a month and have sex every now and then, great. But like, you know, you're CEO, I'm COO and we're running this team. And that to me is like radical acceptance. And on the other end, there's problem solving, which is like, I want that spark back. I want to be intimate. I want to have fun with you. I want to like optimize so that even with our full lives, and even if you don't have kids, I think kids are just one of but many examples. So how do you think about those two things? This like, oh, setting a bare minimum and then the fear that you look to 55, 60-year-old couples that separate simply because they've grown apart. And on the other hand, not wanting to get caught up in trying to problem solve and like just adding stress because you're trying to do way too much. Because a lot of times it can feel really freeing to just be like, you know what, like we are we are logistical partners. And <laughs> once we both accept that, then all the stress of having to try to be more goes away. Yeah. But that also feels really dangerous and scary. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're framing sort of two extremes. And I, I it's interesting that you're... Uh, articulating that the suggestion that I gave was a little bit at the one extreme of really low bar. I don't think it feels like, it's interesting that it feels like a very low bar for you with a a newborn baby, because for a lot of people, it feels like about as much as they can do. They're just wiped. So it's amazing that that feels low bar. For a lot of people, it it feels like a lot to ask in the beginning because they're just exhausted. And what I would say is it's sort of like a temporary holdover. That's not the the ultimate goal, but that is sort of, you got to do something even when you feel like you basically have nothing to give because your relationship isn't something that you can say, well, I'll just kick the can down on the road until when I have something to give. So you should do something. And then the goal, the the practice would be to regularly check in, you know, once a quarter, once a year at minimum to say, is this how I want to be having my relationship? And one thing, and this is a common exercise in acceptance and commitment therapy, is to sort of do this perspective-taking future self exercise where you look back on this phase of life. So for example, given that so many couples part ways after their kids leave the house because they've realized they don't have anything in common anymore, they really didn't maintain a connection 
while they were raising their children and they really just did it as, you know, collaborators, but not as real intimate partners. Is that what we want? And if that's not what we want, and we're imagining ourselves at age 55 and looking back on this phase of life, what would we be glad that we did in this phase of life to maintain a connection, to maintain a spark and recognize that it's going to be hard, but can we commit to something? Can we try to maintain some practices of staying romantic, staying interesting for one another, staying um, respectful and and in love with one another. And what would that look like? And it's going to look different for every couple. But what we do know from the literature is that variety is important. Um, sharing is important. Seeing each other for who you are is important. Finding the overlap in values, having new experiences together and apart. Um, you know, appreciating differences and appreciating similarities both. So there are various things that we know are quite helpful. Um, and so to be regularly refreshing how you how you go about it, like what is it that's important to you to nurture and how do you want to do it in this particular phase of life? And kids go through so many different developmental phases. So like as parents, we're going to be di- directing different amounts of resources and different kinds of resources their way. So in a sense, like, the bandwidth that you have for your relationship is going to be changing. So the goal is it's never okay to give nothing to your relationship unless you want nothing back. You got to give something. And the question is, what is it that you want to give given what it is that you want back from your relationship? Like if you want very little, maybe give very little. But if you want it to be something that's interesting and romantic and connecting, what is it that you think you and your partner can do together to sustain that kind of connection over time? Recognizing that, you know, in life, there's going to be ups and downs and different kinds of challenges that you have to go through. You don't have control over all those things, but you can decide from a values-oriented perspective how it is that you want to be nurturing it. Yeah, it's probably just my own immaturity. Like, I love my wife. She's my best friend. I just like want to hang out with her and have fun. Aww. And when you have <laughs> two young kids, you can't do that. Um, and we've got a lot of like very true privilege, right? I work from home. My wife has a very generous maternity leave policy. So it does feel like a low bar just to go twice a month. Um, but then doing any more is really exhausting. So yeah, it's, it's both of those things. Yeah. So, so, you know, as listening to you you there, Gal, it seems like so much of this is like setting and then communicating the right expectations and that, maybe societally we've like been pushed towards having like just distorted expectations on everything. I think that's true. (laughs) I think there is this, this global expectation that our relation, like if you marry the right person, it's supposed to feel natural and you're not supposed to have to work too hard at it. But that's not the case. I was actually just, I didn't read the primary study. I was reading a book that referenced this primary study, which I've heard about before, and I need to go check it out. But it was something, they were comparing couples that were arranged marriages versus couples that were love marriages and looking at the relationship quality over time. Arranged marriages start out with lower relationship satisfaction Mm -hmm. and grow in their satisfaction over time, whereas love marriages start high and deteriorate. And one of the big takeaways from that is that that is about the expectation. And when you are in an arranged marriage, your expectation is we have to figure out how to work together. We have to learn to love one another. And in fact, we can, right? That That is absolutely available to us. And I'm not suggesting that people do arranged marriages. That is up to you. But 
what I do think is helpful is reestablishing that expectation. Like loving somebody is a practice and it, you know, even with our kids, like that comes more naturally because we're biologically wired for it, but it is something that we work at. Like when our kids are really annoying, like we sort of, at least for me, I don't know if Brad, you can speak to this, but like we have to kind of come back to ourselves and like, this is my baby. Like I love them. They're driving me crazy, but I do. I love them. (laughs) You kind of have to like coach yourself. It is even more true with your partner. And one thing that's interesting too from marital history is that, you know, in the seventies when there was a legal change and no contest divorce, divorces skyrocketed. And there is something about feeling like we don't have to work at it that releases us from working at it. But when we don't work at it, we're much less likely to bear the fruits of a really flourishing relationship. That is not to say that every relationship needs to be worked at. There are some that are deeply unhealthy. But what we can understand is that relationships on average take effort. It takes work because again, like a plant, you got to feed them. You have to give them sunlight and water and minerals for them to thrive. Yeah. It, it kind of reminds me of that research that looked at kind of, um, it's been Soulmate versus destiny. I was thinking the same yeah. thing, passion paradox, right? Right. Exactly. It's like the Disney princess view of it where it's like, Oh, if I find my soulmate, everything will be taken you know, care of and, you know, love's great at the beginning, but then just fades versus if you go in with that uh, mindset of growth, like you said, in the arranged marriage, like then you realize, oh, I don't need the perfect fit, but I'm going to have to really work on it. Um, And it even sounds like, you know, this expectation piece, all going back to what you said at the beginning with arguments, you know, I think so many people think like, oh, the, you know, the perfect whatever marriage, I'm not going to argue but there's that research that shows that like no arguing like is a sign of like bad things to come in that relationship and that you really want, you know, a little arguing yeah. that is like doing it well. You do. I mean, the, the, that is 100% true that all good intimate relationships have some conflict because you're not married to yourself. Like you are going to not see eye to eye sometimes. And in fact, if there is no conflict, it probably means there's a lot of avoidance, not so healthy for relationships. So the goal is not to not have conflict. The goal is to have healthy conflict, which means that you work things through. You understand your partner better after you have a conflict. They understand you more. You grow together. You learn to appreciate differences. You learn, for example, for your kids, how to model disagreeing respectfully, that those are all really good ways to have conflict. And in fact, we should be having those kinds of conflicts. And we should teach our kids through those conflicts, you know, how to disagree and see, not see eye to eye because they too are going to be in close relationships with people that they don't see eye to eye with. Like there's no avoiding that if you're in close relationship. I forgot if I once heard you say this on a podcast or if it was something that you tweeted, Um, but it was in the spirit of it's okay to not like your spouse when you have young kids. (laughs) <laughs> Can you say more about that? I think it was with a friend of friend of our podcast, Lindsay Hine. It was either on her podcast or in some kind of dialogue with her. And she also has a parenting podcast. Yeah, she's awesome. Um, yeah, I definitely think that that's true. And in part because, you know, what what we know from research too is that, and, and you talk, you both talk a lot about this, but feelings lead to reasoning, not the other way around. And when we have young kid, how do we feel? We feel stressed out. We feel tired. We feel extremely grumpy. We feel like everyone needs our attention and nobody's giving us any attention. And when we feel that way, 
our mind wants to come up with a rationale why. Like our minds are storytelling machines and and the reason that they're storytelling machines is they want to understand a very complicated, confusing world. So when we're feeling all grumpy in our bodies, our mind is going to explain why. And it's hard to blame it all on a baby that you chose to have or, you know, that isn't their fault that you have them. So the next in line is usually our partner. And I remember in the middle of the night, this is probably true of each of my little kids, but certainly I remember it with my last one, just having fights with my partner. And like, I wasn't even sure why I was so mad at him, but I was so mad. But it was totally because I was really tired. I I mean, and he slept a little bit more than I did because I was nursing and it just made me mad. But I had chosen to do that. He would have been fine if I had chosen not to do that. And he he was so confused why I was so angry with him all the time. And it wasn't until after I was getting sleep again that I realized, you know what, I think I was just tired. And my mind was explaining why I was so tired by villainizing him. That isn't to say that he couldn't have done better. I'm sure he could have, but he was human too and feeling pretty tired. And that is what I see a lot in the couples therapy room is that people craft this really tidy story of how their partner is uncaring and selfish and does all these villainous things. And when they share their story, what they share is completely the opposite, that they feel uncared for and disrespected and blocked out and villainized. And, you know, even when they try to help, criticized. So it's an interesting dilemma that we get so upset with our partners. And I think it's unavoidable because of that tight feeling to reasoning sequence and because we are so tired and uncomfortable in our bodies when we have young children it's going to happen. And so I think the best we can do is unhook from that storytelling, recognize that that is what our mind is doing, have a ton of self-compassion because it is exhausting and stressful, and recognize that our mind is telling us our partners, you know, the big baddie, and that we might want more from them, but there's probably a lot more to the story than what our mind is telling us. And just to be as compassionate as we can with ourselves and you know, if we can identify like a compassionate thought to our partner to access that too. Yeah. It's so much like, um, just like any big goal that you're working at, whether it's athletic or creative, everything you're saying to me applies. Like it's this ongoing process and sometimes you're going to hate the process. Sometimes you're going to have really good workouts. Most of the time it's just going to kind of be average Sometimes you're going to catch fire writing. Sometimes it's going to be a struggle to show up. But if you keep working at it and you keep in mind like, hey, I really like writing. I really like training. I really like founding companies, whatever it is, then eventually like the path takes you where you want to go. But it requires a lot of work. Like there are no quick fixes. And to Steve's point, it's interesting that relationships kind of like get cast into their own category. If like, oh, you're in love. It should be great. Or hey, if I need to explicitly talk to my partner about my needs, like that's to me, that's a sign that you're in a great relationship. But a lot of people would be like, well, why do you need to do that? Like, why can't you just read your partner's mind? And it's just, it's bizarre how relationships somehow fall out of this, like do the work mentality. To your point, you can't work your way out of unhealthy relationships, just like you can't work your way out of unhealthy relationship with the creative process or sport or whatever it is. But is there, do you have like any hypotheses as to why relationships kind of like exist out here on their own?
It's a good question. I mean, I, I do think, so there's this really interesting book by Stephanie Kuntz called Marriage, A History. And it, I always think about that in, in light of this kind of question, because I do think it, it's really culturally derived. People didn't used to expect that much from marriage, you know, in like the 17, 1800s, you, you married for protection and for economic safety. You didn't marry for love. You didn't expect that much of your relationship. And that, that isn't, you know, how we necessarily want to be. But the, you know, the more time has gone on, the more we expect of marriage. And, you know, in the 1960s countercultural revolution, marriage became this vehicle for um, self, self-actualization, self right? That our partner is supposed to support us and help us be more ourselves and be our sexual gratification and our best friend and our confidant. And at the same time, we started putting less and less into our relationships and and expecting a lot more of them. So a lot of it is really culturally derived in terms of both our expectations and what we believe we should be putting in. And there is something so nice about that mythology, right? Because life is hard and it seems obvious that parenting is hard and it seems obvious that working out is hard and it seems obvious that professional life would require a lot of work. It seems like such a nice idea to say, oh, in our closest relationships, we shouldn't have to work so hard. So it, it's not surprising that we've bought into it because it's it's a delightful mythology. I mean, Hollywood has baked on it and it, it like I love rom-coms, you know, as much as the next lady. Um, they're delightful because it's such a beautiful fantasy to not have to work so hard for something that is so core to our well-being. And I do think that the answer isn't, okay, well, now let's, you know, put marriage and close relationships into the category of our most painful workouts. But, you know, let's maybe do something different, which is find ways to work on it that are more enjoyable and intrinsically motivating. So find ways to enjoy working on your relationship as much as you can, recognizing that not every single day, Brad, as you said, is going to be a joy, but that we can find the joy in the journey. Um, and we can work with our partners to do more of that, right? This this is a collaborative effort. You know, it reminds me a lot of, and I'm going to use the running analogy again, um, but it reminds me of the trap that you fall into when you just, you have like this, the world aligns, you have this perfect race where you run really fast and it literally doesn't hurt, even though you're giving 100% effort. And the trap is people think, oh, look at this. I experienced this moment of flow and everything aligned. This is how it always should feel. And then that's not how it feels. And, and I think in a lot of ways, this is what we're getting at is marriage is sometimes there are those moments where it all aligns, it feels great, all that good stuff. But we we do ourselves a disservice to set that as the expectation for the whole thing and i'm i'm you know kind of riffing off of that a little bit is if we've put our marriage as like the uh provider of self actualization and all of our needs i think if you can wave the magic expectation wand like what needs do you think it primarily fills versus where could we maybe diversify our our sources of meaning or needs in a modern world that's a that's a really interesting question and to some extent i think it depends on on you and your partner and i think it's actually a really nice conversation to have with your partner how is it that we want this marriage to fill our needs and how are we going to nurture it so that it can fulfill those kinds of needs and I, 
I, I say that, you know, it's really individual because, you know, more and more, this is an interesting shift in couples therapy, but there are a lot of people who come in in open relationships. So the expectation is not necessarily that they're, you know, a monogamous relationship fulfill their uh, sexual needs, but they, you know, are able to find other partners to do that too. And in a lot of those couples that I've met with, what they've decided is that they would like for this relationship to be a lifelong partnership, a committed partnership that other people might come and go, but they would like to commit for life. So that might be the agreement that they have in terms of what they, what need that they want their primary relationship to fill, which is like, I always know that you're there for me. You always know that I'm there for you. And that is something that we can trust on and rely on as we, you know, try to make our way through this complicated, sometimes challenging world. So that might be it. It could be, Brad, this is getting back to your question, like we're collaborators in the raising of children. You know, you're the CEO, I'm the CFO or whatever it is. And we're um, doing this logistical thing. And it could be that you expect a lot of your marriage. Like let's, I really want us to be best friends. I want us to be sexual partners. I want us to raise the kids together. I want us to support one another's professional lives. Oh, wow. That's a lot of things that we want from our relationship. How are we going to feed this relationship so that it can offer us those kinds of things? Because if we want to feel romantically connected, parentally connected, professionally connected, we're going to need to nurture those connections, feed those connections so that it can offer us that feeling of being connected more often than not. Um, so it is, I, I think you can dis, and by the way, I have lots of couples who say, you know, we don't really want to be sexual partners, but what we do want is to be financial partners so that we can support each other in retirement, or we don't want to be such close friends, but we do want to co-parent. And those are fine uh, agreements to make, but it's helpful to make them explicitly and then to be curious together with your partner of what it is that you need to do in order to help your marriage offer that to you. Do you have enough pattern recognition in your practice yet to be able to say if people that come in with open relationships um, but still wanting to be partners long haul, if that works for a lot of people that choose that route? Or is that still something that is fairly new in its widespreadness? Um, I would say I'm terrible at predicting anything with relationships, which is kind of a funny thing to say given my line of work. But what I will say is I think it makes me better at my job. Like I am, I'm incredibly, I'm a terrible judge of anything. I'm a terrible judge of character. I'm a terrible judge of futures of relationships and I'm an eternal optimist. So I, no, I, I cannot tell, but I, it helps me to always believe in the possibility. And what I always say to all my couples is if you are willing to do the work, just about anything is possible in this relationship right? If you're willing to grow and try new things and listen hard and um, speak clearly and respectfully, so much is possible. And that's true of open relationships. That's true of people who've had affairs and other really devastating betrayals. That's true of people who have grown apart and, you know, have begun to really dislike each other, that they can come back together. But, but they don't always, right? Because sometimes you know, it doesn't work. And sometimes they're just not willing to try because the pain is so big and hard to overcome. Um, but yeah, no, in answer to your question, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm bad at that pat pattern recognition. All right. I've got an unrelated question and it's not even a question. It's, um, it's a call for um, consolation or reassurance, or I don't even know what, but Theo is almost five and he's like a little boy now. And 
I've been having these moments where I just look at him and I'm like, what, where did the time go? And I'm reminded there's this beautiful story of Freud being on a walk with uh, a poet. And many people suspect the poet was Maria Rayner Rilke. And Rilke just like couldn't find joy in the walk. And Freud kept being like, dude, why are you so down? And Rilke said, how can I enjoy any of this knowing that like all these flowers are going to die and one day I'm going to die? And how can I find joy knowing that it's all just impermanent and transient? And Freud would say to Rilke, like that's the, or at least people think it's Rilke, that's like, you should love it even more knowing that it's going to pass. And um, I always found that intellectually like a beautiful story, but now like it makes me want to cry. And um, yeah, it's nuts. Like how both, like it's bittersweet is the emotion, but just how I want to like really pause time on my almost five-year-old right now. And I can't, and it makes me sad. Yeah. I so feel that, um, that bittersweetness and my youngest is six. And so I'm like jealous of you because you get to go, both of you get to go through all the baby things. And I. Oh, the ba- no, 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 no. The baby things. <laughs> if I can hit fast forward. Like, it's five. It's I love five. the baby things. Because he, like, he's both like this hilarious, entertaining character, adult, little adult. He's not a little adult. I need to be careful. That's my parenting trap. He's still a child, but he's so mature and like he's a great hangout and he's cool, but he also like still wants to cuddle and like fall asleep together. Yeah. And to me, this is like everything. He wants to both play basketball and kiss me on the lips still. And if we do a good job, maybe he'll still be doing both those things at 18, but it won't be the same. Yeah. And um, yeah, I've just been getting sad at night about it. And it's not like a depressive sad. It's just like, a like where has this time gone? Yeah. Well, I think that that bittersweetness is so inherent to parenting because there are so many beautiful things that are just so very impermanent. They're so fleeting. Like the, you know, the feel of your little kid's hand in yours or them cuddling up to you or the funny joke that they tell. It's like you you can't bottle it up. It's like it just, it comes and it goes so fast, but it's so beautiful. The thing that makes me feel better about it is that at each stage and with each of my kids, there's been beautiful things to look forward to. And so I think that that's kind of my approach to grief in general is that loss often comes with gain and it's so easy to get caught up in the loss part of it, but to, and to allow yourself so much compassion and, and, you know, the other side of grief is love, right? So that's not even a bad thing. It's like, it's a sign of how much you care for, you know, Theo at this particular moment. And that is so beautiful. It's like grief and love go together. But to remember that with each loss, there's new opportunities that grow. So my oldest is now 12 and I, you know, he was my first. And I remember so much about the specialness of each moment, but his 12-year-old self is pure magic to me. Like I would Mm. never, I probably, if you had asked me when he was one, I would have just been heartbroken to think of him at 12 because he was just little and perfect and just, you know, a little angel that I could never get enough of. I was fully obsessed with him. But his 12-year-old self is such an interesting, thoughtful person that surprises me all the time with his wisdom and humor. And he still hugs me with these long, gangly arms and it's just so beautiful. So reminding yourself that loss is full of love and that 
with each thing that you say goodbye to, you also have an opportunity to say hello to new, beautiful, surprising things that you don't even know what's around the corner, especially with kids. It's so fun and and sad, both, right? It's like making room for the both and of the complex emotions that go with parenting. Yeah, I try to do all that. I think it's just like, it's a different kind of grief than I've ever experienced. Um, and it's probably because it's a different kind of love that I've ever experienced. Um, and maybe it's just like, hold it all. That's my job. Yeah. Hold it all. And I think, you know, write about it, capture it in some way. Oh, I am. Right? This is a big, <laughs> for like, this is a chapter in my next book. Um, so yeah, it's That's just, it, it, it really is. Um, yeah, it's just wild how much more like I feel it with my son. And I think some of it too, if I'm self-analyzing is, my wife, I kind of see us like walking this path together and evolving and growing and changing together. And from day one, I've just respected her as like a fiercely independent person that I fell in love with. And your relationship with your kid is just different because like they're dependent on you. And I'm sure that like being his best friend as adults, I hope we can be, will be wonderful. But um yeah, there's just something about this age. And I, I so hope that it's even better at 12. And it's the first time anyone's told that to me. So thank you. You've given me mm. some optimism. It's contagious. I I mean, I wouldn't say it's better. It's just a different, different. joy. Yeah. Like the being needed, there is something about your kid needing you and you being the center of their world and wanting to be close to you that is amazing. And my 12-year-old doesn't feel that way towards me as, as he did when he was two or something. but there are there are other things that are even better that his two-year-old self didn't offer because he wasn't developmentally there yet. So, but, but I hear you that there is something so different and special about parenting a really little one that, you know, it, it is, it's sad when it feel when you realize how impermanent it is. Yeah. Not a really little one, a medium little one. Really little one <laughs> gotcha. Can, can you fast forward? No, <laughs> no baby stuff for you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Well, we've, I'm going to take us off the baby stuff for a second. Um, we've kept you for a while here, but I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask how your kind of experience in all of this has changed as you've gained some sort of public notoriety. Right, you've written a book. Notoriety. Like you've got, you've written a book. You put stuff out there. I think it's a little different because now you have something to your namesake, right? Yeah. And like, does that change? And sometimes, you know, people that changes how people look at you. For example, for you know, um, you mentioned at the beginning, you said, um it's really hard sometimes to apply what I know in my professional practice to my home, right? And that's a common experience. But people might look at you and say, oh, you must have like the perfect relationship and must be great because you know all of this various stuff. So I'm wondering how you hold that like public, you know, now expert versus like what, uh, you know, what happens on the day to day all at once. I'm probably too transparent about the fact that I may know some things, but I'm pretty imperfect in their manifestation. It's like a big joke with my kids that I'm a parenting expert. They quite literally laugh about it. <laughs> so, I mean, I I actually think I'm a pretty good parent. I, I absolutely adore my kids, but I'm pretty strict and we have I'm really close to each of them in very, very different ways. 
So I feel pretty confident as a parent, but part of my confidence comes from the real awareness that there is no such thing as perfect parenting. So I don't feel bad when I drop the ball, which I do regularly, when I get grumpy with them and say something unkind, which is not aligned with my values, or when I forget something important. I'm I'm pretty good at saying it's okay, you know, I'm human and apologizing when I need to apologize and trying to do better the next time and using that to teach them, but also to build our relationship more close over time because that's important to me. Um, so, you know, having this sort of pressure to be some kind of an expert, I, I can wear it pretty easily because the way that I define expert is not it allows me to be quite imperfect and I can be honest about that without feeling any shame at all because I, I just don't think that that is a realistic expectation or even something to shoot for because how would it be for your kids if you were really perfect and they're they're making, you know, all these ugly mistakes and growing up and are they supposed to feel ashamed? No, like I make mistakes and they're allowed to make mistakes and that's how we learn and grow and we can be proud of making mistakes because that is something that helps us to grow all the more. So I wear that pretty well. It's probably a little bit harder for me to be a couples therapist and make mistakes because I really do wish that sometimes I was a better listener, for example. It's hard to listen when somebody's upset with you. That That is still hard for me, even though I've been doing this work for decades and teach it and understand the science. It's still hard in practice. And I, I that's something that I'm constantly striving about. But again, that one I can also have a lot of self-compassion because I recognize that it is something that's very challenging to do. And I talk very openly with my partner about, you know, I'll try better. And here's something that maybe you could say to prompt me, right? It's my responsibility. But if you could help me notice when I'm getting off track, that would be helpful and I'll, I'll own the rest of it. Um, so those are, you know, areas of work in progress that I think are just going to be lifelong for me because I'm human. And I, I don't mind that Again, I think it's about finding the joy. And I really love the idea of like constantly evolving as a parent and a partner and always learning and growing. And I don't I don't see that as a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. And so I think I can wear that idea of like, okay, I'm somebody who writes about this as, you know, having some expertise and and I do it imperfectly and messily and always evolving and trying to do better. It's like the the good enough expert, the good enough parent. <laughs> We'd all make DW Winnicott really proud. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I um I really love love DW Winnicott's like the, the the work on good enough. And for me, particularly back to babies, I remember reading that it was either Winnicott directly or a Winnicott scholar that basically said like the good enough parent feels rage toward their crying baby and sometimes like wants to throw their crying baby out the window, but doesn't act on that rage. And like, that's the good enough parent because the parent that doesn't feel any of that will one day resent their kid when their kid tries to be independent from them. The parent that acts on it, and obviously it's a hyperbolic example, but that's a terrible, abusive, neglectful parent. So it's like, how can you like just allow yourself to be an independent person that can be filled with strong emotions, but then regulate those emotions and then teach that to their kid? And, um, I mean, it's a recurrent theme through how I think and, and what I just heard you say is like, we can apply that to ourselves too. Like we can get frustrated with ourselves. We can be imperfect. Um, we can want to like drop the mantle of being a quote unquote expert. All that's fine. And I think that the the only like other thing that I would add there is it also helps to know that the people that do present themselves as perfect are grifters. 
um, because nobody can be perfect. It's like a telltale sign. When you said like, I can't predict how relationships will end, to me, that's like, you're a wonderful therapist because any therapist that goes in and says, oh, I know how this is going to play out, probably not the best therapist because then they're filled with all this bias and, and they want to confirm their own opinion. Yeah. I, I love so much of what you said. And I, I do think that we need to be really, really careful with anybody that sends a message of, I have it all figured out because that that is really misleading. I mean, that's sort of the classic Instagram reel of somebody saying like, oh, look at my beautiful life and my partner and I never fight and my kids always have matching socks. Like, I don't know. I don't believe it. <laughs> and I jump in the cold plunge at 5 a.m. Yeah. Well, yeah, um, Thanks so much. It, it's always a pleasure getting to talk to you. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Is there anything that we missed that you think is important that you want to hit on before we wrap up? Um, I don't think so. Just, um, you know, the message of try to enjoy the process, be realistic in your expectations, lots of self-compassion, and don't, don't kick the can down on the road for your relationship. Nurture them. Love it. Well, thanks so much, Yael. Your book is Work, Parent, Thrive. You can get it wherever books are sold. What is your Twitter handle? Remind me. I know I follow you, but I don't know what it is. Uh, At Yael Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn on Twitter, and I think it's just Yael Schoenbrunn on Instagram. All right. We'll be sure to include that in the show notes, folks. Um, so thanks for listening. I hope you learned something new today, and um, we'll catch you next week. Bye.